Thanks so much for joining us for TCC at Home Together. Uh, to all of our host homes, uh, thankful for you joining in with others to worship this morning. To all those who are watching online, we're grateful that you've joined us uh, and hope that you'll consider joining us in one of our host homes soon. Well, today's topic is marriage. As we continue our series in relationships, on relationships, looking at God's design and, and biblical foundations for navigating life with others, um, and doing so in, in connection with our sermon series that we began a few months ago in the book of Ephesians, we come to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, uh, perhaps the, the most well-known uh, of the New Testament passages about marriage. Uh, and, and as we think about marriage. Uh, perhaps there's a movie quote that comes uh, to mind, but uh, in all honesty, uh, marriage is a, is a word that, uh, that an, an idea even, that fosters a lot of different reactions. Uh, and, and as we talk about marriage today, I think it's important for us to maybe even consider what some of those thoughts or responses are. Um, at the forefront, I think as we talk about marriage, our conversation about marriage today differs in many ways from the conversation that and the view of marriage in, in the biblical time, in, in the first century. Um, no doubt every, every century, every age has its particular challenges and responses to marriage, but I think today there's a particular indifference to marriage that, that is particularly unique uh, in our circumstance. There's a, a tendency to put off marriage in the pursuit of an education or a career. I'm not saying that one shouldn't uh, finish uh, their education or, or perhaps uh, think through the uh, financial dynamics of marriage, uh, but, but there's a, there's a, a very um, heightened emphasis upon putting off marriage until uh, these things are secured. There's, there's also a culture and uh, a tendency within our culture uh, to enjoy the benefits and the blessings that God has designed for marriage outside of marriage, which allows for marriage to be put off uh, even longer. Why, why get married when I'm able to enjoy the blessings of marriage without the commitment of marriage? Uh, and, and, then, and then just as a whole, there's an idea within marriage that marriage is about self-fulfillment. Marriage is about uh, getting my desires fulfilled. And if those desires aren't fulfilled, then there's a tendency to say, well, maybe it's on to a different marriage, or at least this marriage needs to end. So I, I think there's a, an indifference that permeates our culture about marriage that differs from what we see in God's Word. But, but you know, when I think about how our culture responds to marriage and maybe how you personally respond to marriage, another word that comes to my mind is hurt. When we talk about relationships that bring us great joy and also come with deep pain, I, I can't think of another relationship that that exemplifies or that characterizes than than marriage. I think about my own life, um, and I've shared my testimony at different times within our church, and and not to press into those details, but I was born uh, to a couple that weren't married. Uh, I walked through a divorce uh, as a young child, and then as a senior in high school. Uh, some people, as they think about marriage, they think about the infidelity or the adultery that ended a marriage, or perhaps the abuse and the abandonment that defined a particular marriage. These things are travesties. These things grieve the heart of God. And I know that for some of us, they've defined our experience with marriage. For some of you, uh, you've tasted uh, the hurt and the pain of marriage. And the pinnacle uh, of hurt in marriage is the ultimate breaking of the marriage bond and divorce. And, and, and divorce isn't just something that affects a, a husband or a wife, but it permeates so many other relationships. And it's especially true uh, for children and, and true for, for extended families. And, uh, and, and as we think about marriage today, and we think about the hurt that is caused within marriage, I want us, as we, as we talk about this, not just to critique the indifference sometimes that our culture can have with marriage, but also apply the gospel of God's grace that heals and restores where there are hurts and wounds because of what's taken place within marriage as well as what's taken place in divorce. 
Uh, we're, we're going to see that, that God's word has something to say about these topics. God's word isn't silent. Uh, but, I, but I want you to know that <clears throat> uh, no hurt uh, associated with marriage, even the, the greatest hurt of all of divorce, separates us from the love of God and God's purpose and desire that he has for us. So there's indifference and there's hurt. We, we just have to acknowledge these things. But I think sometimes for, for those of you who are married, there, there also can be a real sense and at times seasons where marriage is hard. Another word that comes to mind. <laughs> I've heard it said that marriage brings two selfish me's into uh, the union, the one, uh, two selfish me's into the circle of one united us. Uh, what could go wrong, right? When two sinners come together and, um, and, and merge their lives together in, in one as husband and wife. Uh, marriage is a gift and yet it can be harder than you think. Uh, they say that marriage exposes our selfishness that's just inherently lying there that just hasn't been poked. It's that bear that hasn't quite been poked, and yet it seems that marriage brings that out. Marriage can, uh, like all of life, can come with hard circumstances, and sometimes those hard circumstances can create bitterness uh, and frustration and friction within marriage uh, and to, in, in regards to how those uh, difficulties are responded to. And then marriage can be met, like any relationship, with unmet expectations. And those unmet expectations can cause conflict and, and can cause uh, a marriage to, to be hard and to have to walk through hard things. And yet, I think that for me uh, and, and my experience with marriage, the most fundamental word that, that comes to mind, uh, even as I think about the pain and the hurt that I've experienced in, in my, uh, especially in my childhood in regards to, to marriage and divorce. So the word that comes to my mind when I think about marriage and I reflect on what God's word has to say about marriage, it's, it's the word beauty. The idea that God allows two people, husband and wife, to, to come together in a gift um, that is marriage, to enjoy life together, one of my favorite uh, descriptions of what a husband and wife share together is in First Peter 4, 7, when it says that husbands and wives are co-heirs of the grace of life, uh, that, that there's this enjoyment and, and getting to see um, and experience the gospel displayed in a profound way, not the ultimate or only way, but in a deeply profound way within marriage. Uh, the sharing of my life with, with my wife, Emily, uh, is is the greatest joy and the uh, the place in which I've seen God do the most work in me and accomplish His purpose in me. And so, as we enter into this discussion and we look at God's design for marriage, as we're talking about the biblical foundations for for our relationships with one another, we today are looking at this relationship between the husband and the wife in marriage and asking what what is God's design for marriage and. And so no matter what word comes to your mind uh, as you think about marriage, I want you to hear what God's word has to say to us and allow God's word to, to help heal our hurts, to help us to navigate the hard of marriage and to enjoy the beauty of God's design for marriage so that we don't allow an indifference, an ambivalence uh, to marriage, to, to foster in our own hearts, in our own lives, whether we are married or whether we are single, God has something to say to us and desires for us to see his design for marriage. And in fact, marriage is the first relationship that's discussed and, de and described and defined in the Bible. In Genesis 2, if you were to look there in Genesis 2, uh, verses 24 and 25, uh, after uh, God makes Eve and uh, brings Eve to Adam, uh, we see Adam's response as a, one, uh, a response of wonder. He says, uh, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, it says, here's the foundation, Moses tells us, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. You see, this foundational passage tells us of God's design and desire for marriage to bring together a man and a woman in this covenant relationship in which they 
separate from their families, a profound idea uh, within uh, the context in which uh, Genesis is written and still a profound idea today in which there's a forming of something new, a new relationship, a new union, a family, the foundational uh, element that God builds human society upon that, that's required for the furtherance of human society and the ordering uh, of God's purpose and creation. And we know that Genesis 2, 24 through 25 is foundational for us understanding God's design for marriage because it's continuously picked up in the New Testament by Jesus and, and by Paul in particular, as we see in our passage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. But before we get to Ephesians 5, uh, I want you to consider Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 2, excuse me, 1 through 12. In Matthew 19, 1 through 12, Jesus is asked a question by the Pharisees, a question that's meant to kind of stir up a little trouble. Uh, when the Pharisees ask Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 1, it says they come to him, particularly in verse 3, and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, there are differing schools of thought within uh, ancient Judaism, one that had a, a really strict view of uh, of not divorcing except in the most extreme circumstances, and one that had a very low view that basically said, you know, if um, if your wife burns your toast, you know, and that displeases you, you could divorce your wife. And um, <clears throat> and there's uh, a particular uh, broadness to the way that they viewed these things. And, and so they bring this question to Jesus, trying to kind of get him mixed up in, in this kind of controversial topic amongst um, the Jews of the day. And, and Jesus responds in verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning created them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus points back to God's good design and creation for husband and wife within the context of the one flesh union, and Jesus presses home the point that marriage is the exclusive, the unique, the all-encompassing one flesh union of one man and one woman for one lifetime. That is God's design and God's definition of marriage. Now in this, Jesus is obviously being asked a question about divorce. And it brings up, honestly, what, what, what is one of the most sensitive and, um, and, and deepest wounds that uh, you can experience in relation to marriage. And we see throughout the Bible that divorce grieves the heart of God. It, it's not according to God's design. Jesus is showing us God's design is for one man, one woman, for a lifetime to be uh, in this uh, all-encompassing, unique and exclusive relationship called marriage. And, and within the church, I don't know what your experience is, there's, there's some differing perspectives as to what constitutes valid ground for divorce and whether or not remarriage is permitted in, in different circumstances. And I think whatever position one takes, and I'm going to, to, to take one here in a minute to, to help you think through how I navigate this topic and how I want to lead us as a church to navigate this topic. And uh, Pastor Chris and I together want to, to help us to think well uh, about this. Whatever one position one takes, we, we, one, we must continue to submit ourselves to God's word, wrestling with what, what is God saying? What is he revealing to us? But the one thing I think is abundantly clear, no matter what one thinks, is, is we have to feel the weightiness and the significance that Jesus puts upon marriage, that the Bible as a whole puts upon marriage. It's foundational in Genesis. It's, it's what's being reasserted and reaffirmed by Jesus here in the Gospels when he's presented with this question regarding divorce. God holds marriage in high regard and all of us should see it as God sees it, which includes being grieved over divorce. And yet, the Bible isn't silent on these things. God helps us to navigate life in a fallen world. And in fact, Jesus is going to say God has made an allowance for divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. It's not according to God's design. God doesn't command divorce, but he does permit divorce 
because of the fallenness of our hearts, but he permits divorce in certain unique circumstances. We, we live in a culture of no-fault divorces, that literally you can say, I don't like you anymore, I'm not in love with you anymore, you don't please me anymore, I don't want you, I want someone else, therefore this is over. That's our culture. But that's not the culture that God's word describes for marriage. That's not the vision that God's word describes for his good gift of marriage. And yet, as I said, the Bible does give us instruction and it, and it permits, never commands, but permits divorce, I believe, as I look at the New Testament, in cases of adultery and abandonment, which I also believe in, would encompass abuse. And these grieve the heart of God. And if you've been sinned against in these ways, God is near those who are brokenhearted because of being sinned against. And if you are guilty of these sins, God's arms are open if you would come to him in repentance. I love as I read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't cast out the adulterous woman. Jesus doesn't dismiss out of hand the woman at the well. Jesus calls out the hypocrisy and the adultery of religious leaders of the day. But he always holds out his grace, never excusing sin, but always holding open his arms of grace and forgiveness and restoration. And so if divorce occurs in these cases of adultery and abandonment, when the spouse leaves another, Paul particularly talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe the Bible permits remarrying in these circumstances. If someone has divorced on some other grounds than what the Bible calls for and is already remarried, I believe the Bible would call you to repent of your previous sin and to live faithfully within the marriage that God has brought you into. Even if you came into that marriage in sin, God would call you to live faithfully in humble repentance and holiness within your marriage. If you have divorced for some other reason than the grounds that the Bible would permit, God would call you in your present unmarried state to live in singleness and trusting yourself to the Lord. Or if the opportunity were to arise to pursue reconciliation with your spouse as a testimony of God's reconciliation uh, of us to him. How's that for unpopular opinions? I believe this is what God's word calls us to. God's showing us his view and definition of marriage. He's helping us to think about navigating this in a fallen and broken world. Divorce doesn't separate us from the love of God. Divorce isn't the final word on our relationship with God, even if it brings about a final word on our relationship with our spouse. But nor can we jettison what God teaches about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage because we desire to, to have it our way and to define things our way. God is giving us a, a clear definition and understanding of these things so that we can walk in the freedom of his design for marriage. However, there's another passage in which Jesus instructs us in our understanding of marriage, and, and, and then we'll jump into to Ephesians 5. It's found in Matthew 22, also here in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and he says in verse 30 through 32, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished. See, what Jesus is teaching us about marriage here, uh, as uh, important and as unique uh, as the, uh, the all-encompassing one flesh union of man and woman for a lifetime is meant to be, he's teaching us, uh, and I should say putting marriage in its context, its rightful context, its eternal context. Jesus is saying that marriage is not eternal. Marriage is not ultimate. And I remember 
wrapping my mind around this for the first time entering into marriage. I don't know that I really had thought about it before marriage almost 10 years ago now. And I, I still have to admit, it almost personally makes me sad to think about not being married in eternity. And, and yet I know that the relationship I share with my wife now, we will share in a fuller and deeper way and, and fully the way that God intends in eternity without being husband and wife. And I know that my best friend, my preferred friend that I'll drink coffee with every morning in eternity uh, will be Emily Geyer. And if I'm honest, we'll probably have mid-morning coffee and afternoon coffee and then probably evening tea. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around if you're married that it's not eternal. And yet, if you're single, uh, you're probably saying, well, you guys act like it's the most important thing sometimes. And in the church, we uh, sometimes have just kind of talked about life as if marriage is the baseline and, and ultimate. And if you're not, you're deficient in some capacity. And, and so Jesus is here is putting it uh, in context, saying that it's not eternal. It's not ultimate. It's not the end goal of life. You're not incomplete without it. And yet, we also have to understand, as Jesus helps put it in context, when you take what Jesus says here also with what the rest of the Bible teaches about marriage, we can say that marriage is not ultimate, but we have to also say that marriage is not unimportant. Marriage is not unimportant to God. It must not be unimportant to the single person, nor must it be unimportant to the married person. Marriage is essential for God's purpose in the world. It is the way in which God intends for us to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth as he has commanded us. That's within the context of marriage. We should not view it indifferently. So knowing and being known by God is ultimate. And yet for, for many, God has chosen marriage as the context in which he is working to make us, to help us to know and, and, and in which we know God. And one day all of that will give way to what marriage points to and what singleness prepares us for which is to enjoy our forever union with God, our Savior. Marriage isn't ultimate. Jesus puts it in context. And while it's not ultimate, it's also not unimportant. And that's why we have to consider what God has to say to us for marriage and for husbands and wives. And that brings us to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23, excuse me, through 33. Look with me there to uh, these verses. You heard these verses read at the beginning uh, of our message, so I'm going to walk through them together. But uh, as, we, <clears throat> as we read them, we have to actually begin in verse 21, or really verses 18 through 21. And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you might be thinking, if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, Michael, you've now included... Uh, Matthew, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 in three different sermons. Uh, it was a part of what it meant to walk in holiness a few weeks ago. We uh, used it as our key verse to, to talk about what it means to uh, experience God's framework for relationship. And here we are uh, talking about marriage and looking at 18 through 21. Because here's, here's what I want us to see that before we get to God's design for husbands and wives, we have to look at God's provision for husbands and wives. And part of that provision is the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we see once again, don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is going to work itself out in a lot of different ways. In worship, it's going to work itself out in, in, in gratitude and giving thanks. But it's going to work itself out in verse 21 by us submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The work of the Spirit and drawing believers together into this mutual submission as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the foundational understanding uh, or the, the first uh, relationship between a man and a woman before marriage in terms of sequence, uh, if they are believers in, and for God's design, is before they are husband and wife, they are brother and sister in Christ, called to mutual submission to one another. So Paul isn't changing the subject when he starts verse 22, he's saying, if you are filled with the Spirit, this is what marriage will look like. And God has provided the Spirit to enable what God has laid out and called us to as husbands and wives in marriage for us to, to carry it out. And in fact, God, marriage as God intends it isn't possible 
apart from the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so what that means is we, as husband and wife, must continually allow God to have his way in us, to submit ourselves afresh to God so that he can work in us to accomplish his will in our marriages. And so the Spirit is foundational to healthy marriage because it's the Spirit that enables us to obey God, to die to self, and to love one another, to keep our covenant commitments to one another, to navigate the heart of marriage, to extend forgiveness, to, uh, to, to walk in wisdom, to know one another, to understand one another. This is the, the overflow and the outworking of the Spirit in our lives. So God's provision for husbands and wives is one, the Spirit, and two, the gospel. In a moment, we'll look at the specifics of God's calling on wives and husbands but, but here I want us to see that this calling isn't possible apart from the gospel. Because as God talks about the role of the wife and the husband, he can't help but talk about Jesus and his relationship to his bride, the church, which is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus laying down his life for his bride, the church. So a wife's submission is as to the Lord who loved her and gave himself up for her. A husband and a wife are both the bride of Christ. Did you catch that, men? Even as the husband in your marriage, you are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our Savior. Husbands are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, verse 25. That's the gospel. And then as the bride of Christ, both husbands and wives are nourished and cherished by Christ. The outworking, the fruit of the gospel we can say that the gospel is both God's provision for and the premise for Christian marriage. Our starting point as we talk about marriage isn't modern feminism, nor is it chauvinistic misogyny. Our, found, our foundation, our premise is God's provision, the gospel. Marriage cannot flourish as God designed it unless it's watered by steady streams of gospel truth and gospel grace. This is God's provision for us, and we see it woven. It's not just one part, but it, it, Paul says, as I talk about all of this, the mystery is that it's about Christ, and the church is about the gospel. So God's provision for husbands and wives is the indwelling power and presence of the Spirit, and his gospel, which unites us to him and works itself out in the way we relate to one another. And within marriage, it works itself out in the way that husbands and wives relate to one another. And in fact, just practically what this means, and you, you might have heard this, and it's very foundational uh, to my uh, you know, math folks, my geometry folks. I want you to think of a triangle. And think of that triangle with God at the top of that triangle, and then the husband and the wife at the bottom corners of that triangle. God has designed marriage and given us the gospel so that as we grow closer to him, as we press into him and apply the gospel to our lives, preach the gospel to ourselves, husbands and wives in marriage will actually grow closer to one another as they pursue Christ individually and together within marriage. I heard it said this way by an author, David Ayers. He said, do you want an extraordinary marriage? It was this question, which I think anyone married would say, Absolutely. His, his suggestion was, then be an ordinary Christian. Do the ordinary Christian life, which means applying the gospel to the way that you live, to the way that you think, to the way that you love, to your conflict, to uh, the way you respond to sin, to, to the way that you navigate decisions, to the, to the way that you, um, you view others and, and the way you speak and, and the way you think and your heart's affections. Allow the gospel to be applied to your life as a follower of Christ and watch how as you grow closer to Christ, you grow in greater intimacy within your marriage. This is how God has designed us and it's why he has provided his spirit and the gospel so that practically as we pursue him, we actually grow in marriage. And what is it within marriage that, God's, that is God's design for husbands and wives? Well, here, here we go. Jump, let's jump into verses 22 through 24 and look first, at God's design for wives. 
Listen again to verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, let's unpack this. The, the role or the design for wives within marriage is humble submission to your husband. What does that mean? I can tell you this. It's not passive, voiceless submission. It's not being a doormat. It's not those things at all. I said earlier that, that the foundation of marriage isn't modern fe- feminism and isn't chauvinistic misogyny. Those things have no place, ultimately, uh, as, as competing paradigms with the gospel for marriage. And this view of submission flows out of the gospel and is enabled by the Holy Spirit and must be understood in relationship to of the church to Christ. So as we think about submission, we have to think about first the character of God who himself we see um, unparalleled and uh, full equality within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and yet unique roles in which we see in the New Testament that The Son submits to the Father in the purpose and the work of redemption. And and then we see it in relationship of of the church to Christ. I I think it's best been described, when we think about submission, as a heart or a posture of the wife towards her husband that receives and affirms the God-given leadership of the husband in marriage. As it says in verse 22, that... The husband, or in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I said this earlier, that God has made men and women equal before God and before one another. And yet within the shared equality that God has given us, being made in his image, within marriage, God has given differing roles. And we saw that, pat- we see that pattern in God's nature. We see this within the relationship uh, of Christ and the church. And these different roles include the humble submission of the wife, and soon we'll see the sacrificial love and tender care of the husband. So submission is the receiving and the fostering or even encouraging of affirming of the husband's God-given leadership role within the marriage. I think often the pushback is, so, so what exactly does that look like in practice? Does this mean the husband gets to say it's my way or no way? The husband calls the shots on everything, you know, like who pays the bills? Who makes the final decisions? How do you decide how things are navigated within the everyday flow and rhythm of the family life? Does the husband never watch the kids? Does the wife never work outside the home? Does, how, how do we navigate these things? What does it look like for this to take place in marriage? And, And in part, it doesn't give us details, honestly, as we look at the Bible. Um, uh, yeah, I love, um, there's a meme that says, when you, when you think of wanting a wife who has a quiet and submissive heart, as First Peter describes, uh, that shouldn't negate uh, you know, the, um, the, the picture of a woman driving a, a spear through the head of one of God's enemies and judges. Um, these, these views aren't incompatible. We have to look at all of God's word. And when I look at Proverbs 31, when you look at the latter half of that, some of you may know what a Proverbs 31 woman is, or you hear that, that language. It's a, a, a pattern of a, of a virtuous woman. Uh, and that virtuous woman is doing a lot of hard work and caring for her family and, and industrious and using her hands to, to provide and, uh, and, and caring for children. And, and it honestly blows up the paradigm sometimes that we want to apply to, to a wife or, and then it, by extension to a husband. So, but here's, here's practically what I think, if I could just encourage us and, and what it looks like to foster this kind of humble submission uh, within a marriage. So a husband and wife are, are discussing something. I'm, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, where to go out to eat. You know, I, I know in, in our own marriage, um, Emily often freely uh, gives me the, the privilege to choose um, where we want to eat as long as it's where she wants to eat. You know, I, I'm not talking about those kind of moments that are fun as you banter back and forth about this small decision. But in the big decisions uh, of, of life, often what happens is when what I want to encourage is, is you bring up something. You're talking through a big decision. 
a wife's response might mean, well, why do you think we should do that? As her husband shares his suggestion. Or maybe that's interesting. I would love for us to talk more about that. Maybe it's, uh, here are my reservations. Here are my fears about what you're saying. Maybe we could do this. Here's a suggestion as to how I think we should handle this. And as we work through these things, I'm not, I'm not just saying like these are the exact words, but this is the, the kind of, of, of give and take and the way in which husbands and wives care for one another and love one another and pursue what God is calling them to do. And it's not some uh, laying down and saying, okay, well, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. That's not at all what God is describing here. It's describing something much more, I think, beautiful in which a husband and wife are both seeking the good of one another, caring for one another, affirming the God-given roles that they have within marriage. And then there's this trust that flows as a husband sacrificially loves and serves his wife and is caring for their marriage and for their family in which a wife can say, I trust you. And yet, we live in a world where a husband can't always be trusted. We live in a world where our sin gets in the way. And, and, and as we look at this, Paul also goes on to say, as he plays out this submission, he says that it's ultimately, in verse 22, as to the Lord. In the ultimate analysis, the wife's submission isn't to her husband, but it's to the Lord. And sometimes there's this fear. If I'm submitting to my husband, will, will he really value me? Does he really see me? Does he really understand me? Is he really loving me? Or is he looking out for himself? Is he looking out for his interest? See, God says that as we submit to our, as a wife submits to her husband, it's as to the Lord, which is an encouragement that reminds us that the Lord sees us. The Lord sees you as a wife. He knows you. He values you. And he has also put within his design for marriage a mechanism in which the husband, if he's following Christ and seeking to submit to Christ, can't make a decision apart from considering your good. Can't, shouldn't make a decision apart from seeking to love and understand what's best for you and what's best for you together. And so he, he, he gives us this mechanism of, of understanding how we submit to the Lord as well as giving a husband a great call to love and serve his wife. And he goes on to say, as he goes through this, that um, we submit to Christ who is himself uh, as the, uh, the, uh, the husband, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There's that reminder, the husband is not the savior of the wife. The husband is not Christ. The husband has been given a role of authority, of leadership by Christ, but is himself not Christ. And, and there's, there's a recognition of that. And, and there's in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, here we go. There's another in everything. What does that mean? I said earlier that a husband isn't always trustworthy. So is this, is Paul affirming a total submission that a wife can question nothing? Would this excuse a domineering and abusive husband? Absolutely not. The Bible won't stand by that for one minute. And God forgive us as a church as we've entertained ideas and permitted ideas that have allowed that to take place. And may that never be the case here as we walk in submission to him. God doesn't call you as a wife to submit to what is sin or what is abusive. God has provided you a way out and a means of protection. And he calls God's people, the church, to care for those who have been abandoned, to care for those who have been abused, to provide for them in their needs so that they don't have to fear being without. I don't think, though, that Paul is at all saying and everything means absolute submission. I think in fact what he's saying is what he's describing here is that there's, there's no area in which a wife can say to her husband, this area is off limits to you. Certainly true also of a husband in which he can put limits on his love and what he, uh, what he gives to his wife. Just as Christ and the church relate to one another, the church says to Christ, all of me belongs to all of you. And in everything, a wife gives herself to her husband, no area being off limits to him, just as the husband gives himself to his wife, withholding nothing from her. 
This is the call of humble submission of a wife within God's design for marriage. But what else does it say about the husband? What is God's design for husbands within marriage? Verse 25 uh, brings it together in summary fashion when, when it says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We could say, we could, this, we could describe this love in two ways. It's sacrificial love because we see the pattern of Christ giving himself for the church. God calls husbands as the head within their marriage to take responsibility for their marriage and for their family. This, this applies to, to husbands and wives. But selfishness, as I want to apply this particularly to a husband in this moment, is lying at the door and seeks to destroy your marriage. As a husband, selfishness cannot coexist at the same time as sacrificial love. And this is why we must continually grow in Christ because we must put selfishness to death to grow in sacrificial love. Christ calls us to remove every limit in loving and caring for our wife. It's a high responsibility, it's a great responsibility. What does it look like? Back in the day when we used to drive home from work, I would have said it this way. It means that as I drive home, I need to ask myself and I need to pray to God, what do I need to bring home to my wife today? What do I need to bring home to my family today? I'm not talking about the grocery store, though you should offer to do that if she needs that. I'm talking about what is God going to call you to give of yourself to love your wife? to care perhaps for your family if you have children. So today this might mean as you walk upstairs or as you walk down the hall, you need to stop and ask God, God, give me strength, give me wisdom, enlarge my heart to pour myself out for my wife. And then do that tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year and the next decade for a lifetime. And you know what's amazing? Just as Christ, who sacrificed himself for his church, receives the joy of his inheritance, the blessing of, of his bride, there is no greater joy than to have laid down your life for the good of your wife, for the good of your family. God, give me strength. Make that your prayer. God, give increase to my love that I may be poured out to my family and to my wife. And I believe as a husband does that, he will find no greater joy in the Lord and no greater joy in his life than to be a husband to your wife and to, to be a leader in your family. And, and honestly, as we think about love, it's such a general term. It's helpful to continue on. Paul is going to talk, not just a husband, just as he did earlier, he kind of separates out, you know, a husband has this role by Christ, but he... He ain't Christ, right? And look at your husband and say, you ain't Christ, right? Like that's a good, a good word for us all to remember. And he's going to say in verses 26 and verse 27, uh, the work that Christ wants to do in the church is to sanctify the church and make her uh, with, without blemish and to present her one day um, in eternity. That's what God's doing in the church. That's what he's doing both in husbands and wives. And husbands need to understand that so that they uh, can be, um, they can experience God's work in their life as they seek to die to themselves to love their wives. And wives need to know this so that they can die to themselves as they seek to humbly submit to their husbands. But he goes on to say something interesting. He picks back up in verse 29 and he says, no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because um, <clears throat> we are members of his body. Care and cherish, nourish and cherish, those two words. Consider the way you care for yourself. Consider the way you take care of yourself, the way you bathe yourself, the way you feed yourself the way you do things that you enjoy, the way that you avoid things that hurt you, that make you uncomfortable. Bend that out to your wife. But it's even deeper than that. Nourish isn't just kind of provide. I think sometimes we, we, we have this sense of, okay, I gotta provide. And yes, there's a call of provision. But nourish is something beyond that. It means actually to cultivate, to develop. It, it has the idea of seeking to better. 
And not only to, to nourish, but to cherish. It actually has the idea of, of warming, of, of giving a great sense of deep affirmation and value to your wife. Nourish and cherish. Consider God's purpose for your wife. What God wants to do in her. What God desires for her. How God has gifted her. How he wants to use her. And give yourself to de- develop that. To, to cultivate that. To seek her good. It's a call to to tenderly care, to understand, to know, to listen, to seek the good of your wife. As a husband, we are called to never stop learning and cherishing our wife. And as we do that, we'll make our our wife's life a blessing. As we nourish and we cherish her as our wife. And then Paul brings us all together in in verse 33 as a summary. We'll, We'll come back to the verses in between to close it out. But he says in verse 33 as a summary, however, let each one love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, I think in a, in a very deep sense, husbands and wives need to understand and, 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 and see how God desires to work and accomplish his purpose within their marriage. You see, we're married, uh, husbands and wife are married with his grand vision, and yet we're sinners, two sinful knees brought into this uh, this one union uh, flesh, this one flesh union. And a husband in that one flesh union, in marriage, and I know that I can speak for myself, has a deep insecurity, a deep insecurity that, that he asks himself, am I man enough? Am I going to fail? Am I good enough? And one of the ways in which God intends to meet a husband where he's at is by the gift of his wife. And, and knowing that insecurity that a husband has, a wife should make it her goal at marriage, uh, at, the, at the moment of joining together as husbands and wives, to commit, to, to believe in, to encourage, to, to come alongside a husband, to not belittle him, to not uh, put him down, to not demean him, but to encourage what God wants in him. Uh, there have been moments in my marriage where Emily has looked at me and said, I believe in you. I trust you. I'm willing to follow you. And I have heard it said this way by a pastor I appreciate, Ray Orland. He says, a husband will accomplish more by the power of his wife's respect than he ever will by his own self-will. And that's why it says, let a wife respect her husband. It's, it's not the kind of respect that just says, yes, sir, no, sir. That's not at all what this is talking about talking about something much more beautiful of, uh, of fostering the kind of encouragement and affirmation of who God has called you to be as a husband. And vice versa, I think an insecurity for a wife is, is, is the insecurity of, am I the woman that he loves? Does, am I really valued? Am I really cherished? And not just in a superficial way, but in a deep sense of belonging, in a deep sense of who God's made me to be and what God's called me to do. Just as God has given a wife to be a blessing and meet a husband where he is at, God has given a husband to be a blessing and meet a wife where he or she is at. And husbands do well on the day of their marriage and on the today, if that day hasn't come yet, to seek in every way to serve your wife by including and affirming her, communicating to her that she is prized and that she is praised, that you, uh, you are taken with her. She is the standard of beauty. She is the one that you value. She is the one that you love. Listen, the person that you get married to isn't the person that you're married to in five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. But when you commit to one another, that commitment isn't just an expression of your present love, but it's a promise of your future love to one another, no matter what God brings. And you do well as a husband to do everything you can to foster security and significance in your relationship with your wife. That not only that you say that you love her, but that you display that you love her in the way that you cherish and nourish and prize and praise her as your bride. This is God's design for husbands and wives within marriage. But he concludes in Ephesians 5 here with God's purpose for marriage. And his purpose ultimately is a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. He says in verse 32 that all of this is is a great mystery that speaks of Christ's relationship to his church. 
It's about the display of the gospel. As husbands and wives embrace their roles and depend on the Spirit and, and, and the, uh, the grace that comes from the gospel to, to, to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another within marriage. But it goes deeper than that because God's display of His glory is as husbands and wives grow into who God wants them to be. As I said in verse 26 and 27, God intends to sanctify his church, to make his church more like him. And within marriage, for those who are married, God intends marriage to be a means of his grace to make you more like him. Gary Thomas has a book called Sacred Marriage. He says, your marriage is more than a sacred covenant with another person. He says, it's a spiritual discipline designed to help you know God better, trust him more fully, and love him more deeply. And then he asked this searching question, what if God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy, but instead is to make you holy? See, God intends for your marriage relationship, the husband and wife relationship, to be a means of grace to make us more like him. So I have to ask us within our marriage, are we are we embracing the roles that God has given us, pressing into the gospel and depending on the Spirit to grow in those ways? Husbands, are you sacrificially loving and, and caring and nourishing, fostering the, the purpose and desire that God has for your wife? Wives, are you humbly submitting, receiving and affirming the leadership of your husband within your marriage? And practically speaking, if we're going to allow the gospel to be applied to our marriages so that we become more like him, I think the question that, that I would, uh, the practice that I would invite and encourage you to do is to talk together as husband and wife to say, what are we pursuing in our marriage? What's our marriage aimed at? If you thought of your, your marriage like a, a bow and arrow with an arrow, like what, what are you aiming for? What are you, what are you pursuing within your marriage? No doubt we have short-term and long-term goals, but is the overarching goal that God has for your marriage the same that you have? For your marriage. Don't allow the, the tyranny of the urgent and the, the overwhelming stress of this current moment to crowd out God's design and purpose for marriage. And you know, if you're, if you're single and you're hearing all of this, for some, God may call you to a life of singleness. And that would be a gift, even if it were an unwanted gift. But do you know God's design for your singleness is also the same design that he has for marriage? It's for your holiness. And if you desire to be married, do you know that the best way to prepare for marriage is actually to become who God wants you to be? So as we, as we think about God's word and purpose for marriage, it's a word for, for all of us, a reminder for all of us that God's purpose in our life, whatever season, whatever station we find ourselves in, is for us to be holy, to become more like him. And we do that as we submit ourselves to him and we apply the gospel to our life. So what are the particular areas? What are the particular ways that you need to apply the gospel to your marriage, to your role as wife, to your role as husband? And I believe as we do, we'll be a display of the goodness and the beauty of the gospel for the world to see. Let's pray.